Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. The talk I'm going to give is about uh, evolution in the Catholic uh, Church. So what is the relationship between evolution and the Catholic Church? Well, that's a really complex question that I'm not going to be able to answer um, in, in, in the time again. You think about it, there, there are so many things that you have to define there uh, that uh, it, it's difficult even to get started. So if you talk about what do you mean by evolution, you know, first of all. Uh, that means a million different things to a million different people. Okay, uh, you know, because evolution is related to creation. What do you mean by creation as well? Okay, how are you interpreting creation? And then also, what do you mean by the Catholic Church? If you're saying, is, how does the, did the hierarchy respond? How did popes respond? Or how did individual Catholics respond? How did Catholic universities respond? How did Catholic intellectuals respond? So it's a relatively complex question, and I'm going to focus mainly on the talk uh, to sort of limit it in terms of how did sort of the, the Catholic Church as a whole, how did uh, the, the hierarchy respond to evolution, either in official ways and in some cases, in most cases, particularly in the uh, 1900s, in sort of unofficial ways. Okay. Now, before I get started in talking about that, the, the uh, sort of popular perception of how the Catholic Church uh, interacted with evolution has been colored by um, the sort of popular perception of how there's been a conflict between science and religion. Right? Um, and this really, um, this, this idea that science and religion are in a perpetual conflict, or this was called the conflict thesis, really emerged in the mid-1800s. There was a couple books, uh, one uh, by, uh, both by Americans. One was John Draper, another one by A.D. White. These, uh, one was called The History of the Conflict Between Science and Faith, and the other one, A History of the Warfare of Science and Theology uh, in Christendom. Um, now, both of these books, um, you know, were... Uh, sense have been discredited by most historians that that, that thesis that uh, the science and religion are in, in in total conflict but this sort of grew out of both these authors were trying to to um, sort of stake uh, the claim for, for for having science being a larger part of the university curriculum and because so many universities have been founded um, you know as uh, uh, with, with theological missions, they felt that they were being um, marginalized, science was being marginalized, and so this, this whole idea of science and, and faith being at odds was something that they had sort of a political axe to grind because they wanted more control of the university systems and so forth. So that's sort of where it came out of, um, but there's still people that still sort of adhere to that, that, that science and religion are in a perpetual uh, conflict, and I'll, I'll talk about you know, the problems with that. Um, you know, the, 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 the reason people still sort of hold to that idea is if you look at, you know, quotes from many scientists and many theologians, you end up getting um, sort of this animosity. And particularly uh, in, in the late 1900s, you had this. So just to read a, a quote from Thomas Huxley, who was uh, a contemporary, a friend of Darwin's, who advocated um, for at least portions of Darwin's theory, not all of it. Um, and, and, and this is just a quote of his from uh, 1878, where he says, evolution occupies a position of complete and irreconcilable antagonism to that vigorous and consistent enemy of the highest intellectual, moral, and social life of mankind, 
the Catholic Church. Right? So clearly, you know, Huxley <laughs> is promoting this idea of, of, of conflict there. And, and then uh, there's many Catholics who, um, in, in response, saw science as being intolerant and um, authoritative and proud, and they saw science as overly dogmatic. Um, and at the same time, you had uh, you know, scientists who saw um, uh, established religion as overly dogmatic. Right? Well, there. The opposite of that, that, that sort of you, you have the science, religion, and perpetual conflict thesis, you have the harmony thesis, okay, which is also uh, wrong from a historical perspective. And most people that, that, that promote this will give you examples. Oh, you know, there's a lot of great scientists that were religious believers, and they'll play, you know, Copernicus and Newton and Mendel and Lemaitre and, and so forth. Um, and, and that's certainly true, uh, but um, each one of them is, uh, you know, you, uh, often, you know, number of those that I mentioned were Catholic, but some were of different um, Christian religious backgrounds. Some um, had some odd uh, religious um, views and so forth. And many of them actually ran into issues with their scientific theory, with, um, you know, um, established religion. And others, because their scientific theory had certain religious implications, ran into other issues with scientists. So, those two extremes are really, um, you know, the idea that science and, and, and uh, religion are in conflict or that they're always in harmony. Neither one of them stands up to uh, really historical scrutiny. And this is um, something that, that I really began to appreciate this summer as we had quite a number of historians of science talking at this and I had a, a, a lot of opportunities to discuss these ideas with, with them. Um, and one of the things I really took away from that is that you really can't, and historians probably already know this, I'm not a historian, so this is, this is something that dawned on me this summer, is that you can't really talk about the relationship between science and religion. It just, it, 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 it's too big of a question. And for th uh, there's sort of three reasons for that. First of all, um, what is science? Okay. So when you're talking about science, a lot of people use that term in different, different ways. But in the modern sense, we see you know, the modern empirical sciences, the sort of the edifice we associate with science where you have scientific societies, scientific researchers, and peer review, and so forth, that's something that's really relatively recent development and sort of emerged mostly in the 1800s. And before that, you did have you know, empirical science, but not in the same way. So to talk about a you know, centuries-long conflict of science and religion, well, science, in the sense that we see it, it hasn't been around that long, okay? Um, and it's been in different forms. And then when you talk about religion, you get it even more problematic because what religion are you talking about, right? And even then, what religion are you talking about is contextual because the Catholic response to evolution in Belgium was quite different than the Catholic response to evolution in Ireland, right? And that is contextualized by what happened um, in those societies at that particular time. Um, and so I, I had the opportunity to, to speak with uh, um, uh, John Headley Brook, who is a, one of the, um, a really well-renowned um, uh, uh, historian of science, and his book, uh, Science and Religion, uh, I'd recommend it uh, to anyone. But his, his thesis is, is, what the, is what he calls the complexity thesis, is that you can't answer the question of what's the relationship between science and faith, because there is no consistent relationship between the two. What you have to do is focus on what was the relationship between you know, the Catholic Church in um, you know, Belgium in the late 19th century to Darwinism, or what was the relationship uh, between um, you know, the uh, 
Darwin's theory of evolution and the, the Catholic Church at a specific time in a specific place. And when you start to ask questions like that, then you can start to see sort of patterns emerging, but you can't then extrapolate those to this is how the Catholic Church viewed evolution. Right? Um, and so the idea of this, this complexity thesis is sort of what I want to, 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 to focus on uh, today. Okay? And, um, and, and how I'm going to look at uh, Darwin's theory and uh, how the, the church responded to it. Um, now, I just want to briefly talk about um, the church's um, sort of response to Galileo. And, and the reason is because anytime you, you want to look at the church's response to Darwin, uh, that is some um, historical fact that affects how the church has responded. And so to put it into context, to really understand the church's response to evolutionary theory, there has to be at least some um, sort of basic understanding of how the church responded to Galileo and maybe why the church responded in the way it did. Right? Um, so, you know, a lot of what uh, you know is popularized about how the church responded to Galileo is is, is, is not true. It's sort of a, sort of a mythical um, uh, embellishment to try to augment that sort of science and religion and conflict thesis. Okay? That said, it's clearly not a case where science and religion was in harmony. There's a bunch of complex issues that that occurred. So, you know, Galileo. Um, in, um, in about 1609, started to, um, to really uh, publicly advance the heliocentric system, the idea that the, the Earth um, uh, revolved around the sun. Um, about uh, 60 years before, 70 years before, Copernicus had published his book about the advocating um, or describing the possibility of the heliocentric system. Right? Now, that book was published in 15... 43. Um, and uh, Galileo was in early 1600s advocating for the same thing, the same sort of uh, heliocentric system. Copernicus's, Copernicus's book was never banned or never put on the index until 1616. Right? So what was it historically that happened in that 60, 70 years that led to quite a different response from the, the church in terms of Copernicus's theory. Well, um, well, one major thing that was going on was, is, you know, uh, the church history was that you had the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. Right? And the, the church was dealing with uh, the uh, interpretation of scripture and where the authority to interpret scripture should, should lie. And so there was a concern about um, individuals such as Galileo interpreting scripture sort of on their own, which wasn't as pronounced when Copernicus published his book. So there's a historical event that sort of colored the response the church had um, to uh, Galileo. Um, and that then you know, led to Galileo having to uh, retract um, his book and his book being put on, on the index. Now he was never tortured and he ended up living in a relatively posh sort of retirement. Um, but there was sort of a conflict there, but it was, it, it, it was something that went beyond just you know, a narrow between science and faith that had to do with interactions between Protestants and Catholics and the dynamic that was going on in the time sort of fueled, sort of, or, 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 to some extent contributed to the response that the church had there. 
Um, and uh, you know the church then, you know, is, 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 you know, is, is since you know John Paul II apologized for that, the the, the, the Galileo affair. Um, you know, John Henley Brook, the, the the story I was talking about, was, he argues that had Galileo published his book a hundred years earlier, that he would never have had this issue, right? And that there was a specific historical context that occurred that uh, that, that led to this this, uh, this the the the, uh, the the issue that he had with um, uh, particularly Cardinal Bellarmine and uh, having his book listed on the index. Now, when we look at Darwin's theory and the Catholic Church, it's important to keep in mind that 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 there's going to be a historical context. There's something going on in the 1800s. And the, and the church is not in isolation. It's not the church in isolation interacting with Darwin. But Darwin is interacting with the scientific community. The church is interacting with the world. And there's a lot of issues that are going on that are going to influence how the church uh, responded. Okay? And so it's not a neat sort of uh, uniform thing. You know, they say the church always responded this way. The church always responded that way. Uh, but the church's response was always sort of on the unofficial level. Right, so you don't have documents in um, Vatican documents, official documents, pr pronunciations about evolution and the compatibility or lack of compatibility of evolution with Catholic faith during the 1900s. Right? So The Origin of Species was published in 1859, the first edition, and it went through a number of, uh, of, of revised editions. And we want to look at a sort of... Uh, Three questions. Right? Uh, first, how did the church officially respond right, over time? How did the first church officially respond immediately? Um, and then uh, what historical factors affected this response? And then how did Catholics um, attempt to reconcile evolution and their Catholic faith? Right? Were there um, you know, efforts to do that? And what happened? And how did those efforts um, or how were they received? Okay. Well, the first um, sort of official church response was in uh, 1860. And this was not a Vatican response. It was a local provincial council in, in Germany who uh, responded to um, the, uh, the theory of evolution with um, a, um, a, a pronunciation. It was part of a, this was a, a sentence I'm going to read. It was a part of a document. It was reviewed by Rome, but it was not, uh, it was not uh, an, an official church position or a church statement. And it says, our first parents were created immediately by God. Therefore, we declare as contrary to Holy Scripture and the faith, the opinion of those who dare to assert that man, in respect of his body, is derived by spontaneous transformation from an imperfect nature, which continually improved until it reached the present state. Right? Um, you'll never see anything like this coming out of the Vatican during that time. Right? There was no official position you know, that, that, that here. So you have this sort of... Um, uh, response by the church uh, in uh, provincial council in, in Germany. But that is sort of the only official response. And at that level, it's at a low level. It's not a response to the hierarchy in, in, in Rome. Right? But it does um, capture, I think, the spirit of the concern that popes and um, the Vatican had about the theory of evolution. So if you look at um, the Vatican newspaper, the Jesuit periodical, um, the, the Catholic Civilization, uh, it was founded in 1850. 
And it's just, um, you know, in its 100th anniversary, they, they printed, uh, you know, the description of it. And it's called, it's more than a simple journal. It's an institution desired and created by the Holy See and placed at its exclusive service for the defense of the sacred doctrine and the rights of the church. So if you look at the articles that are, are published in this, and, and, and the Pope uh, was uh, influential, Popes were influential in determining who was the editorial board and who ran the paper, but it was not an official church document. You know? So things that are in there are not official church teaching, but it does give a glimpse of sort of how the Vatican perceived evolution. Um, for the most part, it was very, very um, unfavorable to any evolutionary ideas. And in fact, a number of authors that I'm going to talk about that tried to reconcile Catholic faith with evolution um, had their books reviewed and always reviewed poorly by this Jesuit newspaper in, in the Vatican. Um, so in a sense, you have, it seems, in, in general, you have the Vatican um, not making any official statements, but in many cases, through back channels and so forth, we're trying to um, at least inhibit, sort of suppress, or not so much, uh, not always suppress, but at least limit sort of speculation of how evolution and the Catholic faith might be um, um, brought together or, or, or um, uh, synthesized, right? particularly in the late 1900s. Now, one of the reasons, you know, again, uh, contextually, why you know, the church was uh, it largely not uh, sort of vigorously interested in engaging in uh, or with evolutionary theory at the time, there were sort of two reasons. Um, one, you know, contextual, two reasons, I think, that, that I want to perform. I'm sure there, there, there are others. But one has to do with um, the advent of or the expansion of, of, of biblical criticism during the 1800s. Right? Um, and uh, particularly in Germany, higher biblical criticism, sort of the critical approach to the Bible, seeing the Bible as you know, just uh, another story, it's just a human invention, um, and then um, trying to understand, okay, who wrote Exodus and why did they do it, what were, their manip you know, what were they trying to do, and, and, and sort of seeing Jesus as sort of maybe a mythical and not a, uh, a divine figure, seeing that the, the, the Bible was not um, you know, divinely inspired. Um, and so there was a lot of that you know, going on, and so the idea of trying to redefine or reinterpret the Bible uh, was uh, something that evolutionary theories thought, well, we need to somehow reinterpret the Bible to, to look at Genesis passages in a different way. And so there was sort of a reaction against that because, again, you have uh, so this modern biblical criticism that the church was reacting, rightly so, reacting against. Right? Um, and so reading uh, from uh, you know, uh, an encyclical, one of the encyclical provincialists, Deus, um, you know, uh, the Pope wrote at the time, we have met the rationalists, true children and inheritors of the older heretics who, trusting in their turn, their own way of thinking, they deny that there is any such thing as revelation or inspiration or holy scripture at all. They instead see only the forgeries and falsehoods of men. And I think this, um, you know, reaction, again, to, you know, a real problem in the 1800s, led many in the church not to be interested in dialoguing with people that wanted to see how they could make evolution compatible with the faith. And the other issue was that there was many people that were evolutionists who thought that there was no way 
to make it compatible with, with faith. So I read that quote from Huxley before, where he saw the church as basically the enemy of reason. Uh, and, and so you have this dynamic, this conflict that's set up, where you know, overall there was not a, a major um, initiative for the church to, to, a major reason for the church to want to engage. And so they sort of took a, uh, it took a, a step back. The other issue was that the church didn't want to officially I, I think, um, um, uh, make a statement on evolutionary theory. It's, as a scientific theory, you know, it's not something the church is going to want to wade in uh, on. Uh, once that theory starts to uh, cross over and make philosophical claims, the church has every need to, to, to step in and clear those up. But in terms of evolutionary theory as a purely scientific theory, the church, particularly from the, you know, uh, the, the, the shadow of Galileo, doesn't want to step in and make a, a pronouncement. So you have a, a, a dynamic that was going on. The church wasn't going to say anything official, but at the same time was not going to be very receptive to trying to unite the two. Now, the other issue that was going on is that during the late 1900s, Darwin's theory was running into a lot of trouble right, in the scientific community. Now, this, a lot of people interpret this in the wrong way. So just, if, you, if you look at evolution, you could um, use that term in many different ways. And I'm just going to use it in two ways right now. So evolution, you talk about common descent, okay? So the question, are all organisms related by common descent? Did humans evolve from primates? Are they related by common descent? That aspect of evolution was never um, you know, uh, much in question among scientists in the late 1900s. Okay? What was in question was how did evolution proceed? What was the mechanism behind that? And many scientists, and, and Huxley, who I wrote, read a quote from earlier, was one of them, who thought natural selection Darwin's theory wasn't sufficient. There had to be something else. And there was other ideas. Saltationism was one of them, where you had these giant leaps and so forth. Um, Lamarckianism was another, where organisms, what they um, do during their lifespan, you know, if you run a lot and your heart gets bigger because you run a lot, then your children are going to have bigger hearts and so forth. Um, and then orthogenesis, which is the idea that there's some internal factor driving evolution in organisms, that there's some internal force, a material force that's, 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 that's moving evolution forward, that natural selection alone wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't enough. And so that led a lot of, of people to say, well, it's not even worth engaging him because it's so speculative, right? because nobody's really sure what the mechanism is. Um, but uh, the, the idea that, 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 that uh, humans had evolved from primates, and the, the body of a human had evolved from primates, was something that really wasn't necessarily in, uh, among scientists in the late 1900s, early 20th century, was something that was pretty much well um, uh, received, and there wasn't, uh, uh, there, there was more unanimity there than the, the mechanism. So the mechanism was, was really in question. But a lot of people saw that, hey, there's confusion, there's discussion about the mechanism, maybe evolution is a bunch, but why do you even bother, you know, discussing or trying to make it compatible? It's a passing fad, it will disappear, it will be gone before we know it. Okay. Um, now there were many um, Catholics who uh, and, and Catholic clergy, Catholic lay people, who um, were scientists that, that engaged the question of evolution, who as scientists thought, you know, I see here in evolution, particularly in common descent, there's a lot of good evidence, circumstantial evidence for this. Um, this seems to be a, a theory with traction. It makes sense. Um, it's, it, 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 it abides by much of the evidence that we see. How do we now make this compatible? Can we make this compatible with Catholic faith? 
And the interesting thing is that a lot of them wrote books and the Vatican responded in different ways to, to these books. So um, there, there's four I just want to briefly mention. The first was an Italian, um, who, uh, Italian priest, um, uh, Father uh, Caverni. He wrote a book in 1877, um, and that book was immediately placed on the index within a year. Um, and in that book, you know, he argued the possibility that, uh, that, that humans um, had evolved from other primates, you know, as he was arguing for common descent um, in trying to make it compatible with the Christian faith, the Catholic faith. Um, and within a year, the book was placed on an index, and, and he retracted uh, the book. That was the only book that was ever placed on the index and publicly um, released. There was other books that were condemned by the index, but were never actually placed on it. So in terms of official condemnation, that was the only one. Right? There was another um, a couple I'll mention. One is uh, Father Zam, who was at uh, Notre Dame. He was an American um, priest, and he wrote a book in 1869 called Evolution and Dogma. And again, in it, he argued, uh, it was a relatively long book, he argued a number of things. Um, he argued uh, that for common descent, that the, the first man um, could have evolved from, uh, from primates. And he also argued um, that uh, using uh, the idea of primary and secondary causation from Aquinas um, to, to justify um, that, uh, uh, he, he, he probably overstepped, he, he argued that Aquinas would, could be considered an evolutionist, which probably goes a little, certainly a little too far, but he did argue using primary and secondary causation that, um, that God is still in charge of an evolutionary process, even though the secondary causation of, of, of mutations and selection was what brought about the first human. Um, and then he also um, went back and looked at you know, what Augustine had said about uh, the, the seminal, the seed being planted in creation, that there is a, a seed that germinates in the sense that the potential is there, and this is an example of the potential of creation unfolding. Now his book was condemned by the index within a year and a half of it being published. Uh, but through some negotiations, he um, was able to keep the book from actually being publicly listed on the index, and he never had to publicly retract um, his, his, uh, his, uh, his book. Right? So it was, a, you know, again, a different response. Um, See, so, uh, Myvart, George Myvart, who was an English biologist, had a totally different um, reaction from uh, the Vatican and the index. So he wrote a book back in 1871, much earlier, um, arguing much the same. Right? Um, he was a layman. He wasn't a, 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 a. He was a biologist. He was friends with Darwin. Um, Darwin, in later editions of his book, um, responded to some of the criticisms that Myvart had uh, raised against his 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 theory. Um, and uh, his book was never never condemned. Right? Um, it, there there was many you know reviews by, um, by Catholics that, that thought it should have been, um, but it, 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 it never was. Now, he had uh, other things that he wrote that ended up getting onto the index that had nothing to do with evolution, but his writings on evolution never did. So you have, uh, you, you, what you see here, if you're trying to develop, okay, what is the church's response to evolution? There's no consistent pattern, so what I'm getting at. You have one book that gets put on the index and listed, another that's ignored, never put on the index. You have another one that you know, is condemned but never makes it to the index. And this is sort of what you see. You don't see a concerted um, a campaign by the Vatican to suppress evolutionary thought. You, know, you don't see a concerted campaign either to engage evolutionary thought. What you see is a much more complex, where on a case-by-case -case basis, you see a different response. Okay? 
So what can you sort of sum up sort of the 19th century response by the Catholic Church to Darwin? Well, I think there, there are some similarities or commonalities that we can extract from that. And that is, one, you have a new scientific theory that's proposed um, that conflicts with some interpretations of scriptural passages. Right? And this is very similar to what happened in the Galileo case. Um, now, historical events are going to favor a relatively uh, conservative approach to scriptural interpretations. Again, in both cases, in Galileo's case, when you have the Counter-Reformation, and here in the 1800s, where you have reaction to this higher biblical uh, criticism. Um, so you have those two. Then the third thing is that the scientific theory then continues to undergo critical evaluation by the scientific community. Same thing happened in Galileo's case. You know, in Galileo's case, the heliocentric system was not accepted until much later on. There was still a lot of debate amongst uh, astronomers about the best uh, system for understanding the, um, the heavens. Similar thing is happening here in evolution. For the next, you know, uh, until about the 1920s, you have a very much uh, influence of what is the mechanism that drives evolution. There's a lot of debate about that. Um, the response of the church overall was to try to at least minimize attempts to reconcile the new theory with Catholic tradition. Right? The fact that it did ask authors to retract books, that it asked authors to uh, at least refrain from publishing things in many cases, sort of, a, sort of in a, on an unofficial level, wanted to remain distant, in a sense, from gauging the topic of evolution. Now, that's different than what you see. If you look at Catholic scientists at the time, particularly by the end of the 1900s, most Catholic scientists in their societies, and if you look at international meetings of Catholic scientists, what you find is that by about 1900, most of them are pretty much um, in agreement that at least common descent is the best way to make sense of the fossil record. Um, earlier in the 1880s, you see a lot of scientific conferences where Catholics get together and they're debating and trying to pass a resolution. Should we investigate evolution or should we not? By 1900, they don't do that anymore and they basically have, have agreed that, yeah, we need to investigate this. This is a, um, a, a useful theory to look at. Okay. Now, if you look at the church's response to evolution, I think that what you see, you see a, a, a relatively large change in sort of the tenor of its response in the 1930s, 1940s. From that point on, you see a much more, uh, much more reproach, rapprochement, much more um, uh, willingness to engage in dialogue and to, to see how to um, allow these two to come into, um, uh, at least into contact with each other. Um, in 1932, there was a book that uh, was published um, called Evolution and Theology by uh, uh, Ernst Messenger, and this, the, this book, uh, it, it uh, discussed the compatibility of evolution in the Catholic Church. It talked about the position of the church fathers. This is a great book, the library, actually it's in my, in my office. The library has a copy of this. The library's great for copies of 1920, 1930, you know, books uh, about uh, um, evolution. There's a lot of uh, books, and what you see in the like, 1900s, 1910, 1920, all these books are, uh, they're written by Catholics, they're very anti-evolution. And then you see, start to see this change in the 30s. You start to see much more uh, a diversity in, in, in opinions. Um, Ernst Messenger's book, you know, he discussed the possibility that Adam was just merely the term used for the first humans. Um, but he still argued, as, as, as Catholics do, that the origin of the human soul, and the origin of the, 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 the whole human person, 
and sold person requires divine intervention. Right? And that's something that you see consistently throughout all of Catholic, Orthodox Catholic writing about, about evolution. Uh, uh, his book you know, so it was never, you know, it was, it was reviewed favorably. It was never, there was never an issue with, uh, the, with, with uh, the index of the Vatican. So the, his book, um, it, 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 the, the, there was no effort in the sense to, to su suppress this. Okay. Um, and, and, and it is sort of right on the, um, the doorstep of the first official papal recognition, a document that, that mentions evolution. So most of you may be familiar with this, that the first time a papal document references evolution is in Humani Generis, Pope Pius XII. And this is um, sort of what he said. He said, the teaching authority of the church does not forbid that in conformity with the present state of human sciences and sacred theology, research and discussions, on the part of men experienced in both fields, and, and I, that, that's an important thing, on the part of men experienced in both fields, take place with regard to the doctrine of evolution, insofar as it inquires into the origin of the human body as coming from pre-existing and living matter. Right? And that's part of the, you know, the, 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 the topic of my talk, was that, that the, the need for interdisciplinary scholarship, and that's something Pope Pius XII stresses there. You need to have people experienced in both fields. Right? What you can't uh, have is a biologist commenting on theology where they're ignorant of it, and you don't want theologians commenting on biology when they're ignorant of that. You need people that have a very deep understanding of both, or at least have someone that's willing to listen to the deep understanding on the other side to really get to uh, an understanding of how to put these two together. Okay? Um, and Pope Pius uh, XII, later on in Humanitarianism, points out the problem if you don't do this. And, he said, and, and he's, he's um, talking about uh, particularly scientists who, who rush to judgment. He says, some, however, rashly transgress this liberty of discussion when they act as if the origin of the human body from pre-existing and living matter were already completely certain and proved by the facts which had been discovered up until now. And by reasoning on those facts, and as if there were nothing in the sources of divine revelation which demands the greatest moderation and caution in this question. So he was, uh, you know, certainly not, uh, clearly not a ringing endorsement of evolutionary theory, uh, but, but, but pointing out that, that you need to have a serious discussion about the limitations and the, uh, ben, uh, the, the, um, of, of, of the theory and of understanding of what the Catholic understanding of creation is. Right. Now I'm going to skip a few years up into the 1990s, right? uh, and the actually 1980s, 1990s, and uh, look at what Pope John Paul II and uh, what Pope Benedict have written about this. And, and, and what you see is a, is a much, um, uh, there, there's continuity there, but there's a different tone. Right. I, I think with Pope uh, Pius XII, there, there is, you know, you, you, when you're talking about this, you have to uh, maintain that the human soul is something divinely created. The human person, in a sense, is divinely created in that respect. That continues on through the writings of John Paul II, not surprisingly, and Pope Benedict. Um, but what you see is, a, I think, a much more a receptive viewpoint to the theory of evolution, particularly, you know, um, a common descent. Um, in, in, their, in, their, in their writings that you don't necessarily see in Pope Pius XII, and largely because you have 50 years of research that have occurred during this time, right? um, I, I believe. So Pope, Paul, uh, Pope John Paul II, he wrote in 1996 in his Pontifical Academy of Sciences, today, almost a half a century after the publication of the encyclical Humanity Generis, 
new knowledge has led to the recognition of more than a hypothesis in the theory of evolution. And he talks about that, that there was later on, if it were to read further, he talks about how there has been multiple discoveries in many different disciplines coming together that sort of a point towards evolution, particularly towards, uh, I think, uh, common descent. Um, he does then stress that you have to maintain that anybody that, that talks about the evolution of the, the human soul um, from pre-existing uh, uh, matter and so forth, basically what Pius XII, he reiterates that that's something that we're not, you know, the, theologically, that's something that we're not going to be de debating. Okay? Um, but if you're talking about the evolution of the human body, uh, Pope John Paul II, I think, is much more amenable to that. Pope Benedict, I, I think, um, goes even further. And this is, uh, I'm taking this from a, a book he wrote. It's called In the Beginning. And the library has a copy. It's a relatively thin book. It's basically four homilies he gave in the 1980s. Right? And uh, he talks about uh, creation and evolution in these. Um, and uh, the quote I'm going to read here, it says, we cannot say creation or evolution inasmuch as these things correspond to two different realities. The Genesis creation account does not, in fact, explain how human persons come to be, but rather what they are. Right? <laughs> and vice versa, the theory of evolution seeks to understand and describe biological developments. To that extent, we are faced here with two complementary rather than mutually exclusive realities. Right? So again, um, it, it's a, a much more of a, a looking at how do you harmonize uh, these two? What is the truth there in evolution, and what can we get out of that, and how does that inform, and what is the truth that we have there in our understanding of, of, of creation? <laughs> now, mind you, none of these are, you know, what the Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict are encyclicals, not official, you know, church positions on evolution. There is no sort of official church position on an evolutionary theory, at least as a scientific um, um, theory. Uh, but these, um, I think, point towards the need and how to engage um, uh, a bridge between the two. Okay. Um, recently, in, the two in 2004, the International Theological Commission, which is an advisory body, so again, it's not an official church um, statement, but it is an advisory um, a body of theologians um, that uh, produced a document called Communion and Stewardship, Human persons created in the image of God. Um, and in this, they point out, uh, you know, and this is a point that I think you find in uh, the writings of those uh, people I talked about from the 1900s, this idea of how to harmonize sort of a, a, a contingent process, a process that's, that, that, that might involve random events with God's providence. And said, even the outcome of a truly contingent natural process can nonetheless fall within God's providential plan for creation. Right? Um, and, and that, you know, relying on the work of, Aqu of Aquinas. Uh, this is something that's, that, 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 that uh, they're pulling from, from his uh, idea of primary and secondary causation and the idea of that no matter what uh, happens, whether something happens by law, by necessity, by chance, by human action, all of that is subject to, is, 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 is part of and parcel of the primary causation of God, right? However, it, it sort of happens. Um, and then, they go on to make the same point that the popes were making before, and that Catholic theology affirms that the emergence of the first members of the human species represents an event that is not susceptible to a purely natural explanation and which can appropriately be attributed to divine intervention. And that's a thing that comes up over and over and over again in any church document, whether, you know, again, the level of, of, of how official it is, is is different in all these documents, but that's something that you see over and over and over again. Okay. 
So where do we go from here? Right? As I said, there's a need for interdisciplinary scholarship. Right? And I'm going to talk about four disciplines in particular and sort of what we need from all four of those disciplines. Right? So for history, I'm not going to talk too much about this, but the understanding of the problems that have occurred in the past and the factors that have contributed to them in the Galileo case and how the church responded to evolution in the late 1900s is important for putting things into context and realizing how best to respond, the problems of responding in a certain way helps to, to, to frame uh, the issue. And it is useful for seeing how the issue is framed today. Because today you have a lot of you know, atheists who argue, you know, people like Dawkins um, and, and Hitchens and, and Victor Stenger and so forth, that argue from an evolutionary perspective that, hey, you know, evolution demonstrates that there is no God, that there's no purpose, that there's no plan, and so forth, um, and that uh, the, you know, God is just a figment of our imagination, and so forth. Well, you know, th that's there, and, and that's something the church has to, you know, has to respond to and react to, but to react to their arguments rather than reacting to evolution per se, because they're taking evolution and making an argument with it. And that's something that, that, that you need to keep in mind because we've seen problems in the historical past where the church didn't necessarily do as good of a job of making that distinction. Um, philosophy. Well, and I think it's, you know, it, it, it's clearly important to make distinctions in the type of arguments that people are making um, and to clearly delineate the philosophical arguments, philosophical positions from arguments that are based on science. And I think that is what creates most of the confusion um, out there. So when you talk about someone that's uh, uh, a Darwinist, right? well, a Darwinist could be a purely scientific position. Right? Or some people use the term Darwinist to refer to an atheistic position, which again is not a scientific position. And so clearly delineating a philosophical argument from a scientific argument and making and holding particularly atheists accountable to, hey, this is no longer a scientific argument. You're not talking about scientific theory anymore. You're talking about, you're making a philosophical argument. Making that point is extremely important to help moving the debate forward. Um, theology, right? expounding upon and further developing our Catholic understanding of creation. Right? Now, what does it mean when we talk about uh, the creation of the human person? What do we mean when we talk about God as the creator? What are the things that are essential to our Catholic faith? And, and, and what are the things we, that, 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 that we think that we can develop our understanding as you know, more and more knowledge about the world is brought in? Okay? Then what is modern science? Well, modern science needs a more rigorous empirical investigation of evolutionary theory. Right? And to maintain a clear distinction of science from philosophy. I'm just going to read a quote here from... Uh, um, this is an author of one of the major textbooks, college textbooks on evolution. He are in, this isn't in the textbook, but it's in another book that he wrote. His name's Douglas Fuchiyama. And he writes, Some shrink from the conclusion that the human species was not designed, has no purpose, and is the product of mere mechanical mechanisms. But this seems to be the message of evolution. Okay? So, what he's arguing is that evolution, you know, and if he's arguing that it's, you know, from a scientific perspective, that if you look at the science of evolution, it demonstrates that there's no purpose. Well, science isn't the tool to demonstrate whether there's purpose in the universe or not. Right? Science is a tool for demonstrating and understanding mechanisms, at least modern science, as we understand it, uh, you know, modern empirical science is a tool for looking at mechanisms, how things work, how one organism might be able to evolve into another organism, how this structure changes when you mutate it and so forth. But it is not 
you're going to be able to demonstrate purpose of human beings, the purpose of the universe, and so forth. And so when you make that claim, you know, as a scientist, you have now stepped over into philosophy. And keeping that, 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 that a clear delineation there is absolutely important, in particular for scientists, because scientists are the ones that transgress that uh, quite frequently. Okay? Um, and basically trying to understand what, what, what uh, it's often referred to as a metaphysically modest <laughs> Darwinism, the idea of Darwinism that is very, merely a scientific theory. Because a lot of people, Darwinism has become a, um, uh, an atheistic theory. And my my uh, feeling is that we shouldn't use the term Darwinism um, anymore because it's so loaded that you should use the term evolutionary theory. Right? Uh, and, and that is referring to a scientific theory. Where Darwinism can mean a million things to a million different people and leads to too much confusion, in my opinion. Okay? Uh, we're getting close to um, 11, uh, 40, 11, 50. I was going to you know, talk a little bit about um, the different meanings of the term evolution. I think um, um, I'll just uh, briefly mention that and then uh, have some time for, for, for questions. Okay. So one of the things I think that's important to try to understand when you're talking about evolution is to understand the different meanings of the word. Okay? So when somebody talks about evolution and evidence for evolution, what a level of evolution are they talking about? So you can talk about historical evolution, the idea that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, there's different organisms that lived a billion years ago, then there was 500 million years ago. That would, I would term just historical evolution. There's a certain set of evidence that you have for that, okay? and that's a historical science. Right? Um, uh, you don't have necessarily with that, you don't have empirical lab investigation. That's more of a historical science, paleontology, going out and finding fossils, dating rocks, and so forth. And there's very good evidence, uh, you know, historical evidence for that. The second level would be common descent. Okay? So, yeah, 500 million years ago, there was a different set of organisms on the earth than there were 100 million years ago, than there were 10 million years ago. Are those organisms connected by common descent? Did organism A split off and diverge into organism B and populations B and C? That's a different level of evidence you need for that, for common descent. Right? And different things have to be marshaled for that. And then the final would be what I often refer to as Darwinian evolution. And that is, what is the evidence needed to demonstrate the mechanism? How did organism or population A then evolve into population B? What is the mechanism there? And there's a whole different, another set of evidence uh, that is um, needed to be, be marshaled for that. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.